the book of Galatians chapter 3. A few months ago, we started a little series going through the book of Galatians. Uh, we're at chapter 3 right now, and um, I want to basically preface this morning by essentially saying we're going to pick up a passage of Scripture. It's kind of a big chunk of Scripture we're going to be taking a look at here today, uh, beginning about verse 15, chapter 3. Um, but I'm going to preface all this by essentially saying what Paul's been talking about is sort of this ongoing argument, and his argument is stemmed from this question of how are we really made right with God? It's really the main issue. How are you and I made right with God? It's really the issue of all of our lives, because a lot of us, you know, we try to find ways by which we become complete, and when we talk about, you know, being made right with God, we're also basically talking about this idea, how do we make ourselves whole or complete? That's really the quest of everybody. So the reason why a lot of times, for example, this gal is on this quest, she's trying to figure out a way to become made whole. It's one of the reasons why people turn to all sorts of, um, you know, alternative means, whether it be relationships or drugs or trying to become fulfilled through making a lot of money. Um, it's because there's something inside of them that says, I want to be complete. I want to be whole. Uh, in reality, it's the idea of, I want shalom. I want peace. How do we get that? How does that happen inside and the Bible actually addresses that and tries to speak to that. And that's really the issue that Paul is raising is how do we find shalom? How do we get made right with God? How do we find peace? How are we justified is the bigger question or bigger context uh, to which he's addressing all of this. And so with that being said, uh, he realizes that there's this ongoing struggle in the minds of the people to whom he's writing as to how this was done. Uh, there were people in the church to whom he was writing that were saying the way that you're made right with God is by associating yourself with the family of, of Abraham, or of Moses, I should say, by doing what Moses tells us to do, by living according to the Mosaic law, which would include keeping the holidays, which would include eating kosher, which would include uh, being, being circumcised and living according to the specific traditions um, of the Mosaic law. And so what Paul's saying is that no, that's not how we're made right with God. We're not made right with God by the law of Moses or by adhering to what Moses tells us to do. What he's going to try to emphasize to us and lay out for us clearly in an argument is that really the way that we're made right with God is the same way that God made Abraham right with God. And what that means is that Abraham we're told, believed God, just trusted God. And as a result of trusting God, God made him right with himself. In other words, Abraham was justified by faith, is the way the Bible simply puts it. And to break that down, it just simply means he was made right with God, which is a big word for what the concept of justification means. He was made right with God by simply trusting God. That's his whole point. So the question inevitably is going to be asked in the people's minds then why did Moses come along anyhow? What was the point of the law anyhow? The, what was the point of the system, the structure, these holidays, the kosher eating, the circumcision? What was the purpose of all of these, the, of all of these things if these are not the means by which we're made right with God? So that's sort of the bigger theological concept or context. I want to put all of this in. Uh, I'm going to read through this. And, uh, and again, I just want to basically give a little bit of a warning because as we read this, uh, this is a passage of scripture, kind of a long stretch of scripture that most of us are not going to simply sit down in our daily devotions or read about. We're not going to put the scripture like on our coffee mug or have it monogrammed into our Bible. It's not the passage of script that, scripture that this is. This is more of a teaching scripture. In other words, it's one of those passages of scripture that's really part of a line of an argument. 
So in other words, it's very significant, it's very important, but it's one of those portions of Scripture that actually takes a little bit of time to try to understand it, to unfold it, to unpack it. We're going to unpack it. We're going to unfold it. Uh, we, we don't want to run away from these things. It's one of the, the I, I think, the benefits of when you're teaching through the Bible, teaching through a particular book, uh, even though it's a portion of Scripture that normally you're not going to just simply read or have a devotion over, um, it's easy for us to skip over this because it doesn't speak to my felt needs. And so the point of the matter is, is that one of the benefits of kind of letting ourselves just kind of let the Bible speak to us is that rather than us uh, using the Bible to speak into things that we want the Bible to speak into, we allow God to speak into our lives in every area of our life. Even those areas that we may not necessarily need or see as being needful to be spoken into. So with that being said, uh, I'll read this, I'll pray, and then we'll start unpackaging this whole passage of Scripture. So verse 15 starts out like this. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. For the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but to one offspring, who is Christ. This is, that, this is what I mean, that the law came 430 years afterward. This does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God made it to Abraham by a promise. Then why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Christ Jesus might even be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God, we ask you right now that you would help us. Help our eyes to see the things that you want us to see. Help our ears to hear and not just hear, but to comprehend and understand the things that you would have for us to comprehend and understand. Uh, God, at the end of the day, we're just basically recognizing we, we need your help. We need your help to make this really intense, intelligent, logical argument be more than just simply an intense, logical, intelligent argument in our lives. God, we need, a, we need your help to be able to understand how this truth that Paul is trying to convey actually transforms the way that we live, transforms the way that we see other people, transforms the way that we deal and treat other people that might come from different social backgrounds, different ethnicities, different places of life than us. So God, we pray right now, we need your help to accomplish all of this. So we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. All right, with that being said, I'm going to jump basically immediately in. There's two things that I, will, I really want to break this down for you guys because in the text, everything sort of transitions around this bigger concept of before Christ came, he talks about God working. And then he talks about this transition after Christ came. In other words, since Christ came. In a lot of ways, as obviously as we're moving towards this latter part of the week of Christmas, we think about Jesus, we think about what Jesus came to do. I want us to be thinking about that as we're looking through this passage, because there's no doubt in you know, my mind, that's what Paul's trying to do. He's basically realizing that everything he's conveying, communicating, talking about, has to do with the fact that Jesus came, all right? So with that being said, let's first of all try to understand in Paul's mind why he's trying to make a big deal as to how God worked before Jesus came. It's definitely a part of the transition in the text. Why does Paul talk about how God worked before Jesus came and how did God work before Jesus came? So what you need to first of all understand is that God has always worked through kind of intermediaries, all right? Through somebody, through a mediator, a person. In the Old Testament, the way that God did this, it would be through the, the we'll just we'll stick to the text. I mean, there's a lot of different people that God used I mean, you can look at the book of Judges. There's all sorts of people that God used. Some people are sometimes like, you know, how come God always seems to just pick out men? He doesn't. Sometimes he even picks out women. And he uses women to use, uh, to do great things. Like Deborah in the book of Judges. But in the passage that Paul's trying to refer to here, he basically draws our attention to the two main titans of Hebrew, Hebrew faith. The two main gigantic titans of Hebrew faith are these. Abraham and Moses. Both of these guys are monsters when it comes to Hebrew faith. Both these guys, Jews would look back to and say, we're proud to basically be standing on the shoulders of two such enormously huge guys like Abraham and Moses. And so what Paul's going to do, he's going he's to use these two guys to say, look, I want to point out to you God's plan of redemptive salvation, redemptive history through these two guys. So in other words, what I want you to understand is this. We can sometimes get ourselves into a place when we read our Bibles, we focus on very small packages of Scripture, and those become the main things that we emphasize upon. This is why some Christians, when you hear them talk, all they want to talk about is like end times. It's all they focus on is when's Jesus coming again, rapture, tribulation, Yada, yada, yada. So others are like, well, what about the Holy Spirit? When's the Holy Spirit going to come? And we need the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Others are like, you know, what about just wor- worship? Or what about, you know, uh, the theological understanding? Love the Lord your God with all your mind. We want to talk about intellectual, theological type matters. Um, and the point that I think is important for us to understand, all of those are important. All of those are significant. All of those have their place. They're all taught about in the Bible. All of them are important. But what ends up happening oftentimes is we can end up focusing on one or two main issues and we miss the larger scope of the story of redemptive history. I think it's really important for us to try to keep in mind why redemptive history as a whole is very important. I guess the best way I would liken this to, because you know this time of year it comes around and you guys kind of whip out something that you normally don't whip out. They're called you know, jigsaw puzzles, right? Any of you guys do those? They're absolutely boring, but every once in a while, you know, you just kind of get this urge. You're like, I got to put together a jigsaw puzzle of a boat or of a house or a Thomas Kincaid painting or something. You, and so you, you whip out these old school jigsaw puzzles that you kind of keep stored away, blow off the dust, you throw them on the table, and you just kind of put them together. 
I mean, my family's the way it was. My mom always did this. And, and you know, literally, we, we weren't even allowed to eat at the table, right? She would literally hijack our table. And our whole table would just be hijacked for this stupid puzzle, all right? And, it would be, and once it's done, we're like, what are we going to do now? She's like, we're just going to look at it for like a couple weeks. That's lame. Why? But here's the funny thing. There's sort of this, this evolution process of when these things are being done. And you realize that once they're being put together, you have like these little tiny pieces, little patches that are put together. Like, oh my gosh, that's a mass of a boat. Or oh, check it out. That, that's like, a, you know, see this other little clump of jigsaw puzzles and like, oh, that's a lamppost. Or you know, there's a window or something like that. There's a little boy skipping rope or something like that. And you see all these little pictures. Little boy skipping rope. I don't know where that came from. Um, little boy should not skip rope. But the point I'm making is that you, you, see, this, you see these little bits and pieces and you start thinking, I know what this is. And unless you have the box, right, the picture, you really don't know what it is. And I know some people that are like hardcore diehards. They're like, I'm going to put this thing together without the box. They're like, you go, girl, all right? And the point of the matter is that some people think, I'll do it. And they get stuck, they get lost, because they don't have a picture of the whole global thing. The Bible is like that. Some of us read little bits and pieces. We're like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Does it make any sense to why? You know, why would Jesus just die? I mean, well, that doesn't make any sense if you think all of us as human beings are perfect. If you think we as human beings are just worthy of someone coming up and being kind and doing nice things for us, if you think that's the case, Jesus' death, resurrection, really won't make a lot of sense. It just won't make any sense at all. So what we need is we need a whole grand narrative as to what this is all about. It's one of the reasons why Paul is trying to string together this grand narrative. And so what Paul's going to do, uh, as we just read this, he basically squeezed together hundreds, literally hundreds of years of history in like two paragraphs. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Massive. I mean, this is like the, one of the fastest history lessons of time where Paul's just like, look, I'm going to talk about Abraham, and I'm going to talk about Moses, then I'm going to talk about Jesus. He literally squeezed together hundreds, if not thousands of years of history together just in, in one fell swoop. So the point of the matter that Paul's trying to do is he's like, look, don't miss. Don't miss the forest for the trees, all right? Don't miss the big scope of this, you know, drama of redemption, this unfolding, beautiful narrative drama of redemption by just simply focusing on one or two fine points of Scripture, in other words, all scripture is significant, all scriptural truths are important, but they all have their place in the grand narrative. That's Paul's point. So with that being said, let's take a look at really how God worked before Christ came. God worked through two main intermediaries, Abraham and Moses. The first thing he tells us about Abraham is this. Verse 15, he says, God gave human, he's got, I'm going to give you a human example. He says, brothers, uh, even with a man-made covenant, no man annuls or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one offspring. So what Paul's referring to is his promises, ancient promise back in around uh, Genesis chapter 15. I'll read it in a second here. And basically, he's trying to convey that when God gave a promise to Abraham, his promise was to bless Abraham was not to the seeds, plural, meaning every single uh, flesh, blood-born um, son of Abraham. That's not what he's saying, is that every single one of these people are going to be the recipient of it. He's saying it's to, God, to Abraham's seed, singular. So even in Abraham's day, 
God was looking down the line of history to the moment when Jesus was going to come. This is really important for you to understand. Because sometimes, you know, Christians get accused of having this religion that just sort of got made up in the first century. You know, after Jesus died, a bunch of people kind of sat around at a table and just thought, you know what, how can we make this whole thing sound plausible? It's not the case. Paul's like, look, this whole thing was literally done by God. We're just reading the book. We're reading the script. It's one of the reasons why we called this the scriptures, is that God basically said from the very beginning, way back when Abraham was alive, he's like, look, I want to make a promise to you. My promise is this. I will bless you, and I will bless all nations through you and your seed. Singular is what Paul says. Meaning, Jesus. God will bless all the nations of the earth through Jesus. It's probably one of the reasons why when Jesus was born, it said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill towards all men. It doesn't say peace on earth and goodwill towards Jews only. Maybe to Gentiles if it trickles over. It was to all men. God's plan from the very beginning was to bless all men, all races, all ethnicities, all social economic statuses, all genders through Christ. That's Paul's point. So what he wants us to understand with regard to this is that God was working really at the very beginning through Abraham. Verse 17, he says, and this is what I mean, the law which came 430 430 years afterward, doesn't annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So here's what you need to understand. I'm going to give you guys a couple theological concepts. I want you guys just to kind of weather through them and try to pay attention as best as you can. Two words, all right? You'll, you'll need to understand why these are important because it actually your whole salvation depends upon it. Two words. There's two different types of covenants that God has been known to make with mankind. One is called a unilateral covenant. All right, I'll tell you what that means in a second. The second is a bilateral covenant. Unilateral means it's God acting on behalf of himself, not in partnership with anybody. God's saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. A bilateral covenant is kind of like what we have like in a marriage. It's when somebody comes up and says, look, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. We will work together collaboratively. We'll work together cooperatively together. If you break your covenant end, then I'll break my covenant end. That's a bilateral covenant. A unilateral covenant is when somebody says, here's what I'm going to do for you. Let me give you an example. If I were to tell you, look, I got a thousand bucks at my house. It's waiting for you. Just come by and pick it up. What does it require for you to come by and pick it up? Aside from a car. Faith. That's all it takes. It's all it takes. you got to believe me. If you don't believe me, if you just think I'm blowing smoke because you're like, I know that guy has no money in his wallet because I've been out to coffee with him and he never has cash. Right? You're like, you know me well. But the reality is this, is that if you did believe me, let's say, and you show up at my house, by faith you receive a thousand bucks if I had it. But the point of the matter is this. If I were to say, look, i got a thousand bucks at my house. If you come over and mow my lawn, I'll give it to you. That changes everything. It's a completely different covenant. The covenant, the second covenant is a bilateral covenant. If you do this, and you got to agree to that, if you're like, I'll do it. That sounds awesome. A thousand bucks to mow your lawn? You never asked me how big my lawn is, right? I mean, it could be the size of the White House. It's not. But the point of the matter is that the, 
it's, it's, the difference is the bilateral covenant is you agree to do something, I agree to do something, we each play our part, have our role, and we do it collab, uh, collaboratively together. Unilateral is I tell you what I'm going to do for you, you trust me, and you receive it. That's what God did through Abraham. He says, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do for you, you trust me. Abraham, we're told, trusted God. And because he trusted God, that, that was accounted to him for faith, for righteousness. That faith was accounted to him for righteousness. God worked in Abraham's life because he trusted God who promised a unilateral covenant with him. Later on, Paul's going to uh, kind of peg that against the second type of covenant that God does with the children of Israel in the text is with the children of Israel in Sinai. In Sinai, that's a bilateral covenant. It's when God pulls the children of Israel aside. He says, will you guys be my people? They're like, we'll be your people. We'll do anything you want us to do. God says, great. I want you to follow these laws. Here's the rules. Here's the restrictions. Here's the ordinances. Here's the codes. Here's the ethics. Here's everything. And if you do this, you live. If you don't do this, you die. And he says, we'll, live. we'll do it. We'll do it. Amen. 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 We'll do it. Did they do it? No. That's why Paul says earlier, we saw this last week, all Israel, as well as all of us, really are under a curse. Because we don't do it. We don't live according to it. But Paul wants us to understand that the basis of salvation is the same way that it was the basis of salvation for Abraham. A unilateral covenant whereby God steps in and says, here's what I will do for you. This is why this is everything. Why this is so important. I mention this all the time. Religion says, here's what you need to do for God. Gospel says, here's what God has done for you. Religion either leaves you desperate, destroyed, broken, or in despair, or religion leaves you very arrogant, haughty, prideful, fighting, tribalistic. You're wanting to fight for your own little group, own little tribe of people, own little group of people that do everything that you do. Everybody lives according to you. Everybody has matching sweatshirts, wear the same color hairdo. Everything is sort of uniform. This is why people that are religious, that are very arrogant, they don't like a lot of diversity. You notice that? They can't handle diversity. They can't handle people that are different than them. Gospel people say, I don't care if you're black, Asian, white, rich, poor, female, male, bond, slave. I don't care who you are. I love you. Because God doesn't care that about me. That's what gospel people do. Gospel says, here's what God's done for you. Religious people say, here's what you got to do for God. So Paul's making his appeal all the way back to Abraham, saying, here's what God has done for Abraham. I want you to turn back real fast to the book of Genesis chapter 15. I want to read a couple passages to you guys real quick, and we'll move on to the next point. Chapter 15, Genesis says this. God's pulling, pulling uh, Abraham aside. He's like, Abraham, do you believe me? Abraham says, I believe you. But then Abraham's just like us, and he says, uh, around verse 8, he says, but then he said, Abraham said, oh Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess this? I love this about Abraham. I mean, even though Abraham was this sort of paragon of faith, at the same time, he still just needed, you know, little hints to boost his confidence. In a lot of ways, it's just like us. I mean, none of us are, are perfect in our faith. And I love this about the Bible. The Bible always presents the flaws and the blessings of, of its characters. It's one of the reasons why I know for sure this, this has got to be God's word. I mean, if, if this was just simply some sort of a fable, you always make the heroes look perfect. Abraham's not perfect. And so it goes on to say, God, how am I supposed to really know? And here's what God says. Here's what I want you to do. 
Then he goes on and says, uh, verse 9, Then he said to him, God said, Bring to me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And then he brought them, and he cut them into pieces, and he cut them in half, and he laid them each over against the other, and he, did, and he uh, tried to shoo away the birds, basically. And so here's what you got, is you got these dead animals, dead carcasses laying on the ground. They're cut in half, and they're kind of, there's this little alleyway or little, uh, little pathway in between them, okay? That's what you see in this picture here. It's kind of weird. I know for us in our culture, like, do people do that? Mm, I don't think people do that here. Uh, it's must, yeah, some weird stuff going on. But this is what they did back then. And the point of the matter was, this is how they would make covenants or contracts with one another. Here's what's very important you got to understand. So you have these dead bodies on the ground. What they would oftentimes do then next is each party that's making this covenant with each other would then say, do you agree to your terms? They'd say, yeah, I agree to my terms. They'd say, do you agree to your terms? Of course I agree to my terms. Say, Great, let's, let's walk through the animals. So they would walk through the animals. And as you're walking through the animals, I mean, you're literally walking on blood. All right, so, so it's, not, it's not a laughing matter. You're, it's like really serious. It's really intense. Like this is, this, is, this is very serious. The whole point of the matter is to say this is so serious, your covenant that you're getting yourself into, that if either one of you break your end of the bargain, let it be done to you what's happened to these animals. That's the point. Do you get that? So when you're walking in between these animals, you're like, holy cow, this is, this is really serious. This is really serious. Because if I fail, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, this is what's going to happen to me. I will be found out and I will be guilty. So check this out. It's absolutely amazing. It goes on to say about verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire. Um, actually, but verse 12. It says, And the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. And he talks about a time in the future when they will be imprisoned in Egypt. Verse 17 picks up the story. It says, And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant. So I want you to think about this. God's making this covenant with Abraham. He says, here's, Abraham, what I'm going to do for you. Uh, get those pieces of, of sacrifice, lay them on the ground, cut them in half. And then what does God do to Abraham? What, what's Abraham doing? He's sleeping. Guy's literally taking a nap. Taking a nap. And so does that mean that the covenant does not get done? No. Because who goes between the pieces? God. Smoking fire, smoking fire, this flame goes in between these pieces of raw meat laying on the ground. You know what God's basically saying? He says, Abraham, this is a covenant I'm making with you. It's unilateral. I will do this for you. You have nothing to do with this. This is all grace, all mercy, all kindness, all love that I have for you and for your seed. It's so intense as God's saying, look, to the point of saying, even of having my body broken, this is how emphatic I am to keep my side of the covenant. Think about that next time you take communion. We eat a bread that's literally been broken. It's as if God says, you want to know how far I will go to keep my end of the bargain? I will even become what those pieces were. Just to show you how far I will go to keep my end of the bargain. How great is the love of God? Christians, we sometimes ask, does God really love me? How do I know that God loves me? How can I be aware of the fact that God really cares about me? Is God really moving in my life? Does he concern himself with the issues and things that are going on in my heart, in my life, around me? 
God's answer is emphatically, yes, how much does God love me? It's why Paul always doesn't just say, figure out how much God loves you based upon the measurement of what you feel in your heart. Paul always says, understand, measure the love, the depth, the breadth of God's love for you by looking to the cross. See what God did for you. Look to the cross. It was on the cross, just like Jesus predicted the night before. This is my body, which will be broken for you. How great is the love of God in this unilateral commitment, covenant that God will make. And here's what Paul's saying. How are we made right with God? We are made right with God the same way Abraham was made right with God. By this unilateral covenant that God made with Abraham, Abraham was made right with God. By this unilateral covenant that God made through Jesus Christ, he even describes it as such. The night before he was betrayed, before he died, Jesus takes the bread, the cup, and he breaks the bread and the cup, and he pours out the cup, and he says, this is a new covenant I'm making with you. The real issue is, do we believe that? Do we trust that? Do we really believe the gospel? Do we really believe what God has done for us? Not on the basis of our skin color, not on the basis of how much money we have, not on the basis of how good we are or how religious we are or how many scriptures we memorize or our pedigree or the background of our life, but simply on the basis of God's grace and kindness alone. So the question naturally arises, then why the law? I mean, why, why was this this huge period of time from Moses all the way to the time when Jesus came that they had the law? It's a great question. Paul already anticipates. People are starting to think that. So he now moves to the second guy that God moves through history. And the thing that you need to understand is that the way God worked is that God's working through history redemptively. All things are bringing about, coming up to the point where Jesus is going to come. But you got to understand the items, the instruments that God's using, the people that God is using are imperfect. They're sinful, just like us. They're sinners. In other words, the doctor that is going to be the one that's going to bring about the cure also has become infected with the disease. You got to understand that. That's the picture of the Jewish race. Even though God was going to use the Jews as the means to bring about the Messiah, Christ, the Jews themselves were sinful. They needed help. They needed to be quarantined so that they wouldn't infect the rest of the world. And so what did God do? He gave them the law. It was an action of grace. In fact, this is already anticipated in the law because if you look at the law, the law is not just simply, hey, you know, make sure that you, you know, treat your neighbor right, make sure you don't steal from, you know. But the law already anticipates you're going to fail. The law already anticipates you're going to end up stealing. You're going to have sex outside of marriage. You're going to fail. You're going to steal something from somebody. You're going to do somebody, somebody wrong. You're going to take something that shouldn't belong to you. You're already going to do this, and the law already anticipates that. It's the exact reason why God says, look, hey, when you sin, here's the system by which to bring about cleansing. Think about that. How merciful, how kind of God to not just simply say, don't do these things, but God already says, look, when you, when you break the things that you, I'm already going to give you to do because I already know you're going to break them, here's how you're to be made clean. You need a lamb. <laughs> it's just like the whole thing echoes of Jesus coming. So the point that I want to make now is we ask the question, why the law? Paul asked in verse 19, why the law? It was added because of transgression. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. 
And it was put in place by angels, by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So Paul says the law, basically, in short, was given because at the end of the day, we're sinners. And we, we just, we just, they, we just, they need to be, no, we needed to know specifically. I don't have no, well, no idea why I'm having a hard time saying this. We need to know why and how we sin. That's what the law does. It basically, someone put it this way. The law is like a mirror. Even James says this. The law is like a mirror. I mean, look, if you've got something on your face and it doesn't look too good, uh, you go to the mirror and you're like, ah, i got something on my face. You clean it off. And one of the things you realize, you know, when you're in high school, like 16 years old, the law is your good friend, right? Because you're looking all fly. You look in the mirror and you're like, I'm looking really, really good right now. All right, but the problem is when you get older, when you get older, let's, let's say, you know, mate, let's say you get old, like 40, all right? Like me. And when you get older, you start looking at the mirror, you're like, this mirror really, is that, is that real? Is that real? And the reality is, yeah, that's totally real. The mirror just simply reflects me. It reflects you. It reflects reality. And the older you get, I would imagine the more you begin to hate the mirror, right? The mirror didn't do anything wrong. It's just the fact is, is that we are in a body that's constantly degrading, breaking down. And that's exactly what the law does. The law basically says, look, you're sinning. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't take advantage of each other. And, and every time, it's one of the reasons why people hate the law of God. It's really not the law that's evil. It's we're that evil. We need help. And this is what the law is basically saying. It's, Paul's going to go on and say it's like a schoolmaster. Uh, the Greek word is pedagogy, which in the Greek culture, uh, Greeks would have, uh, Romans would also have these ideas, uh, these, um, kind of like a school teacher that would live in the house, kind of like everybody's own Mary Poppins, all right? Except probably not as nice as Mary Poppins. And, and they would come, and they would help guide and instruct and teach maybe different languages. They would teach them mathematics. They would teach them how to read, how to write, all these other things. And they would also teach them to stay out of trouble. They would teach them manners, teach them how to treat other people with dignity, value, and respect. And so when the kid came of age, um, dad would basically pull the kid aside and be like, look, you're an adult now, and you're going to come out with me. You're going to be hanging out with me now. I'm going to take you to the office. I'm going to take you out in the field. I'm going to show you how to bow hunt. I'm going to, uh, if you're you know, a girl, I'm going to teach you how to, like, you know, make bread and teach you how to, you know, do everything that women do in that particular culture way back in that day. Because you don't need, you don't need the pedagogy anymore. I'll take care of that from now. You, you're, you're with me from now on. And so Paul's likening the law to that. He's saying the law served a purpose for a period of time, and now that that period of time is over. The law is no longer needed to be this superimposed type of um, guide over the conscience of the people in this external manner. Now the question oftentimes comes, well, if the law is no longer used in that way anymore, then how are you going to keep people from sinning? This is one of the areas where a lot of times religious people get absolutely out of control. Because sometimes religious people are like, we need to somehow keep people in line. We need to make sure that people live according to the gospel. We need to make sure that people act right and act according to you know, proper dig, you know, laws and rules and whatnot. So what they do is they impose new laws over those people. And that's not God's way either. The way that God intended for this to work was not that the law would be what guides us, but that would, that's what Paul talked about last week, is that what God does by sending Jesus in the fullness of time, Jesus comes, but when Jesus rose again from the dead, he gives us the Holy Spirit. God's means from the very beginning was to give us the Holy Spirit, which in turn would give us a new heart. And so when we have the heart and the mind of God, do you think you'll keep the law? Absolutely. But you keep the law not out of this 
imposing schoolmaster, whacking your hands every single time you fail, saying you blew it again, you failure. Instead, we keep the law now because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, gives us new desires, new passions, new longings, new heart that really wants to do what God wants to do. And we love each other. We serve one another. We want to be forgiving people because God forgave us. We want to be people that are generous because God was generous with us. It's not that someone's speaking down our neck all the time saying, go forgive them. Be nice. Stop being a loser. You know, that's not, that's not what God's doing inside of us. In fact, the whole entire relationship has changed where we don't have a legal relationship with God anymore at all. Because the law was now completely unplugged at the cross where every bit of judgment that we should have incurred upon ourselves because we failed was leveled upon Jesus. He took our penalty for us. And that's where Paul's going to go now. So the reality is, is, does this law contradict God's promise is what Paul asks? Absolutely not. Paul's saying that the law was set in play for a particular period of time, and that period of time is now concluded. It's over. We don't need the law in the same way that the Jews needed the law 2,000 years ago. The reason being is because you don't go back to Mary Poppins when dad's finally home and you're an adult. You don't. You don't need Mary Poppins anymore. You got your father. You're in right relationship with dad now. You hang out with dad. You're spending time with dad. Dad's taking on trips. You're hanging out with him. You talk directly to dad, not Mary Poppins. You're not looking to somebody outside to direct, dictate, guide, convict, control you into some sort of act of submission. That's the whole point that Paul's trying to say, is that the law doesn't, it was never intended to circumvent what Abraham originally did, but it was meant to basically quarantine, as a means of quarantining God's chosen vessels who themselves were also infected with the same disease as all of humanity for a period of time. And that period of time expired when Jesus came. So Paul's saying, listen to what he says in verse 23. Wrap this up. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed so that the law is our guardian until Christ came. Here's what Paul is basically saying. Sometimes Christians, I think, misread this and thus misinterpret it. They'll, they'll say something like this. I need the law right now until Christ comes into my heart. That, that's not, that, some of that may be carryover to what the text is, but really what Paul's saying is that the law was specifically for the Jews, the nation of Jews, and it was for a specific period of time until Jesus came into the world. Now that Jesus has come into the world, the law is not the means by which we operate before God. Now the law may still condemn us if you're not a Christian. But this is not a subjective type of experience that Paul's saying, you need the law until Jesus comes in your heart. He's saying the Jews needed the law until Jesus came into the world. Make sense? So the reality is, is that now that Jesus is in the world, what do we need? You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Not the law to guide you. You need Jesus to give you a new heart. You need Jesus to give you a new birth. You need God to instill within you a new desire, a new passion, a new love for God. The problem is, is that we still find ourselves under sin, still controlled by sin, still a slave to sin. And what we really need is we need to trust 
what God has already done by sending Jesus. We need to trust the fact that God has already brought the solution. For some of us, it means we need to go back and trust the solution that God has already done so that in the present we live out the experience that God had already began 2,000 years ago. In other words, so that we would be set free from sin, free from our sinful proclivities, free from the judgment of sin, free from all of these things, free to live new lives that are pleasing to God. Here's the way Paul wraps this up because we asked the question finally, is how really does God work now since that Christ came? Verse 25 says this, but now that faith has come, or in other words, Christ has come so that we can have faith in him, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You need to understand this, that Paul is not preaching a universal salvation. He's not saying everybody is a son of God. Everybody is a daughter of God. Right, if you're a girl and you're like deeply offended by the son word, it's basically just a gender neutral term. We are all part of God's family. But the means and the way by which we are brought into right relationship with God is through Jesus. That's how we are made right with God. So in other words, the point that he's trying to make is this, is that in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. The means by which you are made right with God is through Jesus. And when you come to God, or come to Christ, here's what God does for you. First of all, not only does he justify you by faith, in other words, you are made right with God by confidence in God. Does that make sense? You're complete. You have shalom. You have peace. You have wholeness. The big theological word, you have justification with God by simply trusting what God has promised. The same way that Abraham was. The second thing you have is you have basically become set free from the condemnation of the law. The law is not condemning you anymore. So some of you might be like, well, why is it that I always feel condemned? Well, the devil is really good at that. He's really good at constantly trying to create this legal standard by which you need to relate with God. Maybe this is the way some of you relate to God. Some of you think of God like this. You think of God as middle management walking around with a clipboard and there's 613 laws whereby he's saying, you failed here, you blew it here, you're horrible here, you're going to condemned right here you looked at this person falsely here you shouldn't be thinking this thought there and you're always feeling deeply condemned and destroyed and some of you in your own lives today you're like god if you do this for me i'll do this for you god if god i'll go to church every single day if you just help me get a good grade if you help me get married if you help me get pregnant if you help me get this job if you help me buy this house if you help me get whatever God's not a boss. He's not middle management. He's not a grumpy old man. What you need to do is you need to repent, which is what the Bible calls us to. The re word repentance basically means to change your mind, change the way you think about God. If you think of God as an angry middle management grumpy boss, that will affect everything the way you live. You will never be joyful, you will never be satisfied. In fact, you know what you'll become? You will begin to treat other people just like the way your view of God is. You'll become ultra-critical of everybody else because you think that's how God is to you. You will start judging everybody else just because that's the way you think God is always judging you. What Paul is trying to say is that you're free from the condemnation. There's not this pressure on your back pushing you down as if you feel as if you're underneath the thumbnail of God and you are being squished and crushed by God. Paul's saying, no. 
Jesus was crushed for you. Do you know that? Do you know that? You don't need to be crushed. Jesus was crushed for you. You don't need to be oppressed by this big picture of middle management God. Jesus was oppressed for you. The final thing that you need to understand is that you, by virtue of what Jesus has done, have become sons and daughters of God. This is so huge. Because some of you, you've grown up in a family that may have not had a dad. Dad wasn't there. Maybe even if he was there, he was a vacant dad. He was a dad that was not active in a part of your life. He was not a dad that hung out with you and spoke wisdom and love and counsel and guidance and comfort into your life. And so your concept of God as being a father is, is all skewed and all broken. And I urge you, don't just try to figure out what this means of God being your father. Look to Jesus. Look at what the way Jesus lived. Understand the way Jesus acted because Jesus says, I do everything that reflects the very character and nature of God. If you ever question the way God's fatherliness is all about, just look at Jesus. He's a good father that loves us, that cares for us, so much so that he would be willing to even take his own penalty upon himself and crush and bruise and afflict and oppress his own son to save you. This is huge. This is why God being our father is so significant. Here's what he goes on to say. He wants us to understand this because at the end of the day, he wants us to realize that we're part of a brand new family. Verse 28 says, verse 27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are one in Christ. But if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the very same promise that Abraham inherited. Here's Paul's point. Is that the way that you're made right with God is the same way that Abraham was made right with God. God made promises. Abraham believed those promises. And he was made right with God. You're made right with God because God made promises and he fulfilled those unilateral promises through Jesus Christ and his covenant and you believe in Jesus and you're made right with God. If that's the way God made you right with him, don't go back into a legalistic standing with God saying, I'm made right with God through Jesus. Now I will continue to keep myself right with God by doing things for God. That will lead you to a place of further destruction, lead you to a place further away from God. That will lead you to a place where you begin to continue to see God as nothing more than middle management angry boss and not his father. Your father loves you. I'm a dad. I got two daughters. I love my kids. There's nothing I would never withhold from my kids. I love my kids. I don't care what they look like. I don't always like the way they act, but I still love them. I would never disown them. I would never betray them. I love my kids. If you're a father, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You know the reality that there's a bond there that is so intense. I will allow myself to be interrupted no matter what. If my kids were to walk in here, barge in here right now, they're older now so they wouldn't do it, but if they were like four years old and they came in here, ran up to the stage and grabbed my leg, I would let them do it. If your kid did that, I probably wouldn't do that. The point that I would make is that I will let my kids do anything because I love my kids. They're welcomed anytime they want to come into my life, into my world, and I want to be able to go into their life, in their world all the time because I love, 
I love my kids. I hope you know that this is how God sees you. He loves you as a father, loves you. So much so, he lays his life down for you, takes the penalty that you deserve to set you free, to bring you into a place of adoption, to be sons and daughters. And Paul finishes with this absolutely revolutionary reality. He says, therefore in Christ, there's no bond, no free, male, no female. There's none. There's no distinctions. What Paul is not saying Male and female don't make any difference anymore. Because, you know, if you're a Christian here, you realize if you're a woman, you gave your life to Jesus, you still got womanly emotions to deal with. Men, you still got manly machismo to deal with. If you're in debt, you still got debt. You don't go to the creditors and be like, hey, I became a Christian today. I still owe $150,000. Can I be free? You're like, no. Congratulations. I'm glad you gave your life to Jesus. You still owe us $150,000. You're still in debt, right? You're still not free to them. But the point of the matter is that in Christ, in God, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, it doesn't matter your background, how much money is in your wallet, how much money is not in your wallet, we're one with God. We're sons and daughters. This is one of the reasons, as a side note, why the mentality that simply says, if you have this mentality that simply says, I will only choose to hang out with people that are of the same social economic scale as me, that only like the same type of music as me, that only live according to the same types of likes and dislikes as me, that are only of the same ethnicity as me, it's actually not walking in accordance to the gospel. What you're actually doing is you're saying God prefers one race above another and I will only choose to hang out with those that are of this particular race or God prefers those that have more money than those who don't have a lot of money. When the gospel basically says God destroyed every barrier, every tribal boundary line, completely obliterated it. So all of us are in Christ as one. You know how freeing this was to women first century that were oppressed? Sometimes people are like, oh, the Bible's all oppressed about women. You know it's actually liberating? You know that statement is so radically revolutionary that women are just like men equal? That slaves are just like their, their masters on the same par, that the dude that's got a lot of money is on the same par as the dude that has, has, owes a lot of money. They're on one same level common ground. Why? Because we have one dad, one father. This is so huge. This is why people who get the gospel can actually go to places like San Francisco in the Tenderloin and hang out with people that have absolutely nothing in common with them. I say, I want to hang with you. You know why you can only do that? The only reason why you can do that is because you are absolutely confident in your family line. And you realize that you are the poor, marginalized, broken, hurting loser that society tends to categorize everybody else according to. That was you. But if you find confidence in your race, in your gender, and how much money you have, in your status, then you'll be arrogant towards everybody else who's not like you. The gospel levels the playing ground and says that we are one in Christ because we are all part of one family. We have a big dad, a good God, a loving father that has at great pains to himself 
paid an enormous price to set us free. The reality is, is that the Son of God became a servant, became a slave to set at liberty slaves so they can be sons and daughters of God. That's what Christmas is all about. I want to read this line of this song. I'm going to have Evan come on up. We'll lead some worship, wrap it up. This great song, obviously most of you guys know it, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's written by Charles Wesley, great preacher. Here's what he says. Powerful words. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. That's his point. Jesus came into this world so that we can be given second birth. So that we can be God's sons and daughters. Who once were not God's sons and daughters. We are slaves to sin. And our father Satan was claiming victory over us. God, undid, God had undone all of that. Undone all of that through Christ coming into this world. And through Christ subjectively coming into your lives. Some of you guys know what that means. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We'll partake of communion here today. As we partake, I want you guys to think about the words that you call God. Please understand, if you ever take the liberty to call God your Father, please understand the means that Christ went through to bring about that relationship. The only reason you can call God Father today is because the Son laid aside his rights as the Son, become a man, the God-man, to be a slave, to set you as a slave, free from your slavery, so that you can become a son and a daughter of God. At great cost, great expense to God's Son, Jesus, he set you free so that you can call God Father. It's huge. God, we thank you for the cross. We realize, God, what you've done for us. We want right now, God, for our hearts to be affected by that, to be moved by that, to worship you accordingly to that. God, if anybody here right now in their own mind, in their own thoughts, are struggling, if they feel any arrogance towards other people, if they're relying upon anything else other than Jesus, God, I pray that the reality would just come to pass in their own minds, that they'd understand that before God, we're all on the same level playing field. We are all sinners. There's none righteous, no one who's better than another person. We have nothing of which to boast, as Paul said, except the cross. And so God, right now, I, I pray that you would just help our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to be fixed upon Jesus. Help us to worship you with great passion and enthusiasm, great affection, because God, of what you've done in our lives. Thank you that we get to call you Abba Father because of what your son Jesus had endured and paid on our behalf. 